Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can head over to blisterreview.com where you can now find the brand new digital edition of our 2021 Winter Buyer's Guide. Plus, you can also head over to blisterreview.com to order your very own print edition of the Buyer's Guide. And little known fact, Cody Townsend, who happens to be our guest today, Cody has only read one book every year for the past six years. And that one book he reads is the Blister Winter Buyer's Guide. It is literally the only book he reads anymore. And as you heard him say at our Blister Speaker Series conversation, his favorite movie is Dumb and Dumber. So I just imagine that Cody goes from sitting around watching Dumb and Dumber over and over again to then picking up the Buyer's Guide, and then he just reads that. And then he goes and skis in Gnarly Peak, and then he watches Dumb and Dumber, and then he's back to the Buyer's Guide. That is 100% true, probably. Anyway, the guide is out, and many of you have already received your print edition of the guide, and there is still time to order your own print copy if you haven't yet. You can also become a Blister member, and I'm going to tell you at the very end of this episode a big new reason why you probably want to become a Blister member if you aren't already. So stick around for that or just go become a Blister member right now. And then the last thing I'll say is the buyer's guide is really good. Plus it doubles as a super sick coaster for your drink. And speaking of drinks, well, we had a few during this conversation. Okay, that said, we also have a first here because never before have we had one guest on three of our different podcasts in a single week. Truthfully, I can say that given the range of different conversations that Cody Townsend and I had while he was in town last week, we could have easily put out like 20 other podcast conversations. I swear the guy really is impressive. And there were moments where I was just trying to keep up with where the conversation was headed. Cheers to you, Cody. I've said that I think you're one of the most thoughtful skiers out there and you lived up to that. So anyway, you can head over to our Blister podcast channel to hear the conversation that I had with Cody for our Blister speaker series. Then you can also head over to our Off the Couch podcast channel to hear a short but important conversation that I had with Cody about how and why he stopped hating running and has actually come to enjoy it now. It is a really interesting conversation. But now, today, right now, it is time to talk gear and drink really good whiskey. So that's what we have in front of you here. Now, I also want to say that this particular episode is presented by our Blister Recommended Shop, the Spokane Alpine House in Spokane, Washington. Spokane Alpine House has multiple certified boot fitters. They have a boot fit guarantee, and they have a head ski tech who has over 30 years of experience. You can check them out at the SpokaneAlpineHouse.com, and they are happy to assist all levels of skiers and riders, from complete beginners to the most seasoned internet skiers. 
So whether you're interested in getting a seasonal rental from them, or you're looking for the latest skis, boards, or boots, or you'd like to learn more about their junior lease and buyback programs, they got you covered. And this season, the Spokane Alpine House will be carrying more backcountry-oriented gear, and they have a fill station for AviPak cartridges. So if you're a Spokane local or you're venturing to or through the area, stop by the Spokane Alpine House and tell them that Blister sent you. Okay, and now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Mr. Cody Townsend. Well, here it is. It is happening. Cody Townsend, welcome to Blister Headquarters. Welcome back to Crested Butte. Yeah. And our first in-person Gear 30 podcast. Which I'm more proud of than even the the speaker series podcast we did last night because Gear 30 is the the one I nerd out to the most. And while I, I, I will not be your spirit animal being... Eric Horlifson. Um, I'm attempting to do my best Hoji impersonation, Got it. which I've been, I think, doing my whole life, maybe in uh. some way. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm stoked to be here. I will say, maybe with the Hoji thing, we actually are the exact same age to the day. You and Hoji, same birthday, same age, born huh. in the same day. So you're. This is turning into like a neck and neck. Yeah. Like, but I think he's he's yeah he's up here in my my book. But you have like literally made the claim that like Gear Thirty is your favorite podcast. I have never heard Hoji say that. So maybe, but, the- but so that's why why he's your spirit animal <laughs> because I'm listening for information and he's creating the information. Ah, he's, a, he's, a- he's on. He's like on the next level. Uh, he's he's a few years ahead of us uh, and then we're just kind of listening and trying to absorb that's what i that's what i think it could be that could be right so yeah listen we need to level with people we just came from a delightful dinner at montagna's yes we may have each had two rum drinks and then were brought shots, shots by Alyssa and conrad shout out to Alyssa and conrad lovely delightful people now we've switched over or back yeah. to whiskey whistle pig. So, you know, we're just saying that we're lubricated. Which is, I think, makes for the best podcasts by far. Unless we start slurring our words. And then at that point, then maybe we should, like, you might want to turn off this podcast yeah. because it'll we'll, get a little ridiculous. But, like, you know, a, a little lubrication, I think, opens things up. That's why people listen to podcasts. They're, okay. You know, so, so Good. yeah. So, it, Alyssa Conrad Montanius, thanks for lubricating yes. us. And we're going to get into gear. And philosophies and, uh, yeah. I I also have to say, I mean, the level of conversation, like, well, we also rode bikes this afternoon, Mm -hmm. which is fun. But, like, we kind of took the uphills easy today Mm -hmm. in part because of your training, current training (laughs) regimen. Yes. I kind of feel like the conversation at dinner was so high level that I was, like, working harder to keep up. On the conversation? Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. We talked about artificial intelligence. Yes. We kind of ran through a whole history of like our favorite movies and TV series. I almost feel like at some point that deserves its own podcast. Potentially. Potentially. Love to talk about that stuff. Okay. We ended up going from like, so did Buddhism in 6000 BC 
is like science by the day proving certain fundamental tenets of Buddhism true. So it's been pretty high level. So yeah, we went through like ancient spiritualism and quantum physics and yes. the same thing. But yeah, like it, ultimately, I guess what we're trying to say is like, I'm a massive nerd and it's something <laughs> like I've, I think I've hidden pretty well, long hair, blonde, Californian. It's yeah. like, doesn't it seem as, but I'm a nerd. I feel like one of the most important things we've done at Blister is out this fact, like more and more. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm actually proud of that. For sure. And like we talked about that early on of doing podcasts about ideas as opposed yes. to just life stories because I get bored of telling life stories, but yes. I want to talk about ideas all day long. <laughs> so now we're talking about gear ideas. Hopefully tonight we can get to that point because, yeah, yeah I really enjoy uh, I, I enjoy tweaking on gear and I like talking about ski gear and I like kind of talking about the philosophy of certain things. So. Yeah. And that's why I like Gear 30 because mm. it ultimately, like the the I, I say this to people, but I'm like, listen to the boot, the in-depth boot stuff that you do. And it is just like, mm, you will learn so much about huh. it. Like, so yeah. I, it's, it's nerd stuff. That's why I like Gear 30. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nerd stuff. It's our new tagline. Okay. Well, we have a bit of an agenda here and I actually wanted to start with coffee makers, because this is something that did come up today. I have been in the market for a new coffee maker. And here's like my take, like I'm not currently carving out enough time to like, I don't want to spend a lot of time making the coffee. I wake up and I want the coffee. And now of course, you know, cause I'm no Philistine and savage. I have a conical grinder and that is a about the most, like, so I will wake up, I will grind beans, but then I kind of like want it, like, let's get this party started type of thing. And so one, I would actually like to ask the audience this question, what is your favorite coffee maker? I want to get some suggestions in here. Skip it with the like fancy, takes you an hour to make one cup. Like that's, I'm ruling those out, but you had a take on this Tell me what you have kind of found and what you're up to these days. Yeah. When it comes to coffee, I'm definitely an, a, a nerd when it comes to coffee because it's like, well, something I drink every day and kind of one of these things where you realize you're like, hmm, since I started drinking coffee, I've had it every day for my life. And you're like, you're like, oh, that's like 15 years of coffee drinking every day. And you start to evolve those tastes and you start to be like, well, I might as well drink it and it tastes a little better and you go to a good coffee shop and you're like, wait, what's, why, what are they doing? Why is it so much better there? Um, as I've gone through my progression of coffee of going from like your first coffee being a Starbucks vanilla latte to now <laughs> where you're like, if it's not black, don't drink it. Right. I've gone to the, the mocha master is the coffee maker that is just, it's the God's end coffee maker and they're not cheap. But what I like about these mocha masters is essentially you get the, the science behind a pour over, which is the science behind a pour over is all about the perfect temperature, the perfect wetting, the perfect timing that it takes of just like wetting your beans for 45 seconds and then increasing the temperature by a couple degrees and then starting to go through the pour over. That takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And I'm in the same boat as you. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I don't want to be doing is standing there for 
eight minutes mm -mm. on my countertop and like waiting for my you know kettle to come up to the perfect temperature and then doing it all and timing and looking at my watch it's a it's a lot of work so what i found is the the mocha master just does that for you automatically you have to have a conical blender which is why I saw in your house today, you had a conical blender. And that's why it's like, okay, he's one step ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and you're grinding your own beans right before. You definitely have to grind your beans the morning of, and then put it in according to the directions of a mocha master, and you will get the best coffee. From there, you end up, I find, we'll end up spending a little bit more for high quality beans because it really takes like the flavor profile out of a coffee so if you have kind of a cheap terrible coffee it will taste cheap and terrible yeah you have a good coffee which is like my preference is i i love Stumptown. that's my personal preference um because of the way that they roast it um but it will take every little flavor that they describe on the packaging you know they say like orange blossom and cinnamon and like uh oak flavor and if you make it in a normal coffee maker, French press, anything like that, you're like, oh, I taste coffee. Uh -huh. You put it in a Mocha Master, it comes out, and you are like, oh, I see. I see how you got those flavors. So Mocha Masters. And the biggest bummer, and this is right, the the company, it's the Technivorm? Technivorm? Yeah, yeah they're a Danish company, yeah. I want to say. The, the biggest bummer about it is that for people who are like, it's black coffee that's what we mean by coffee yeah that it's called a mocha master i know it, kind of ironic but i think it's a, probably some language thing with it okay that's what that's i would okay. imagine but so it, you think in danish mocha master translates to of course you coffee only master coffee yeah yeah okay. it must be i, we'll I haven't looked into it but i thought the same and i was like why is it a mocha master we consider that as like chocolate and sugar and coffee yes. but but it's mocha double c a so i don't know but yeah, if your your beans say they taste like chocolate, the Mocha Masters can make your coffee taste like chocolate. I'll say that. So this is what I'm going to say. Please, please write us and let me know if you have different suggestions. Because if I don't hear any compelling alternatives to this, I'm getting one of these shortly. So, okay. Hashtag not sponsored either. Hashtag not sponsored. Totally. No, it's just two people who... By the way, you crushed a lot of coffee today. Yes, I did. I was like, we'll just make more. And you just kept like, <laughs> I drink coffee slower than you is yeah. what I learned today. Yeah. Because yeah. you just were like. Back and forth, back and yeah, forth. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I respect about you. Another interesting conversation that we've had while you're here. And I'm bringing this up because it was like a very off the record conversation. And I was like, I actually want to bring this up like on gear 30, but we talked a lot about the shift binding. One of the things that I was saying to you is like, I still kind of ride and die for that binding. When we did that conversation of like, what is the best product in all of skiing in like the past decade, I was like shift binding. Now we have received comments from people coming in and are like, I don't know, I've had issues with mine or it's finicky or da, 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 da. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't care. Cause we've used like multiple pairs of this binding. And one, I haven't had those issues. And even if there was a little bit of a fiddle factor, this is still the most game changing product 
that I've seen in the last 10 years. And you had a pretty interesting take on this. And I was like, okay, let's, let's put this out to the world. And, and so here you go. Your yeah. thoughts on the shift. The shift, I mean, I'm like dead set honest when I tell everyone, like there's two bindings I ski nowadays uh, and what I mount my own personal skis with. And it is the MTN being a pin binding. And that's my like long distance touring binding. And then when I'm skiing at a ski resort or going on short tours, I'm on the shift. And I'm not switching over to the STH or the Warden. It is a binding absolutely love but as you said and i notice and i'm i'm i follow what's out there i yeah. see forums i see comments and i see people talk about like oh i've been having issues with pre-releasing and it, it concerns me of like personally because this this binding was kind of a baby from the yeah. beginning it was an idea that myself and chris rubens had and really pushed early on and we tested through seven years of development and testing so you're kind of like you take it personally when you hear that and so i'm like i try to dig into it and i'm trying to figure it out and what i've really come to realize with it and this was even early on is that it is a nuanced and finicky binding and when before we released it one of the things i remember thinking was like it's going to take a little bit of behavioral shift among people to understand this binding one, just in the way it transfers from ski mode to tour mode, mm -hmm. but then two, in the way that you treat it, we're used to full metal STHs and like burly bindings where if you got snow on your boot, you, you kick the shit out of your toe piece to get the snow off. And we're like with the shift, don't, don't do that. Uh -huh. You know, it's a lighter binding. It's the same weight as like a junior seven binding. And it is like, you're not going to want to do that. And so you got to tell people like, don't kick the crap out of it. It's not going to fall apart if you do it, but it's like not going to take as much beating as, as a full metal binding. And then as I started to realize I had friends that were coming to me and being like, Hey, like I'm pre-releasing. I just got it. I love it, but I'm just keep popping out. And I started to like see, like, I remember being like, let me look at your bindings that like their forward pressure was a few millimeters off, but definitely adjusted incorrectly. Their toe height adjustment was adjusted incorrectly, or maybe it like moved a little bit and they didn't readjust it. And these are the kind of things where I'd be like, wait a minute, like, yeah, as soon as I would adjust it correctly, they're like, oh yeah, there goes all the issues. And I started realizing like when it, when it got released to the wild and you're, you're you're trusting ski techs out there that have various levels of experience like the ski techs i work with when i talk to them about that those issues and they're like yeah we've had none of them because they're setting the bindings up for the for their customers perfectly but of all places i was in australia when i was starting to see ski techs that were not setting them up correctly and it was like whoa like only a couple millimeters off and it was failing but it was like not set up correctly yeah and that's when i like really starting to dawn on me like yeah this is a nuanced binding and it's very precise and i've personally with all dead set honesty never had issues with it um if you go back and watch one of the ski movies one of the matchstick movies i was in that i'm forgetting the name of 2018 and I like <laughs> hit some really big cliffs and if you look at the gopro shot i am on shifts I snapped my boots in half twice on 50 foot plus cliffs ski the bindings not broken fine i was breaking my boots before the bindings were breaking that to me was like this is 
a very durable, strong binding when set up properly. And that's the one thing where you're like, okay, most people were trained to deal with bindings is the ski tech sets them up, set them and forget them. You're never going to deal with them again. And so I think with the shift, it takes a little bit more education with the binding, how it works, how the, how it's set up and how you can adjust it. So in that regard, it's like, yeah, I, I, I just think we have to train people. I think it's going to be that way for all hybrid bindings. Like these things are, there's a lot of more moving parts than what we're used to. they also have Alpine standards. So they have to have releasability that is a lot different than a tech binding, but when set up properly, they will do well. So it's just education and whatnot. And I'm, I, I'm, I see those out there and I'll like talk to people and comment online and be like, have you tried it here? Let me look at this. And then generally get back and they're like, yeah, that was here. And they'll show me a picture. I was like, yeah, no, the Ford actually needs to be flush that way, not flush within the back of the binding. So that's the one thing I've noticed about it. Um, to me, it's still like, yeah, it's the most game changing product we've had. Like it's to me, it's pretty unbelievable. Punchline. If you're getting a shift, or if you've had a shift, and certainly if you've had any issues, punchline, check the setup. Two things check up. Read the instructions on how to set up the forward pressure. Read the instructions on how to set up the toe height. Every once in a while, like if your toe is moving up and down, go to the base of your ski area with the like screwdrivers, check the toe height adjustment, change it. You'll be good. And so those are the kind of the only two things that you really truly need to know about it. And the other thing is like, yeah, treat it like it, it's a binding that it's supposed to be. It's a Ferrari. This isn't your, this isn't a Hummer that you just can like drive off road and throw over rocks and like, you know, I'm talking about like army Hummer, not yeah. those like yeah, yeah. those dumb Hummers that were on the road for a while. <laughs> right. Like it's not something that you just, you like, ride it hard and put it away wet like treat it like a ferrari and it will act like a ferrari to you like i mean personally one of the things i've noticed about this and it was something that took me a little bit to realize that binding has the most energy of any binding i've ever skied it skis groomers on piste better than any binding i've ever skied on okay yes and i'll tell you why okay <laughs> and i know it sounds like complete bs but I've had this kind of verified by other people and I try to treat it in terms of experiment being like, like, what did you think? And like, people will say like, yeah, I don't know. It's got some rebound and energy to it. And so one of the things we talk about with bindings and it's a little overrated, but at the same time has some validity screw placement of the binding itself and how it interacts with the ski is important. So like we were talking about this earlier with a warden, a wider footprint with where the screws are actually increase the amount of what we call power transfer, or I think precision edge to edge. The same goes for the overall footprint on the kind of the length of the ski. There is some adjustment to the ski performance, the wider the footprint is for the binding. Well, one of the things you look at the shift and right off the bat, you think it's got a very long footprint. Yeah. It's got a five hole toe pattern. Well, one of the more interesting things is like, you actually see where the binding and the toe piece connects. It's actually a four hole toe pattern, hard mounted in that's pretty close 
to where your toes are actually inserted into the binding. And that fifth screw is floating. There's like a gasket washer kind of setup for that. Like when you mount it, you, you mount a screw in there with like a kind of a gasket washer on it. And then the binding drops on top of it and then slides back. And all of a sudden it realized it was at one point hearing anecdotally from other people, hearing it from my own wife who has like, she's not sponsored by Solomon, but she loves the shift. And she's like, yeah, just skis better, has more energy to it. I was realizing that what happens is there's almost like a spring-like effect where the, the ski is actually flexing under the binding from those four mount points to that fifth screw up front. And you kind of almost get the ski to flex a few millimeters while that, that binding slides over onto that kind of gasket in the binding and then rebounds back. It wants to come back the whole time. It was like, oh, this is like almost like a shock absorber. It's almost got energy to it. And then one of my realizations was too, like there was a couple people I saw online that said the, the binding ripped off the ski. There was one thing that I noticed between them, independent ski manufacturers, and they were very, very soft, flexible skis. So there is actual flex under that binding. So I saw two people with O3P skis that were ripping the toe piece off the ski, yet the front screw was still in and what they were doing they weren't actually ripping it fully off the four screws were still in but it just disconnected because the ski was flexing so much under it and i was realizing like wait no this actually has flex under the binding and it's where i've come to realize like why i like the way it skis is there's energy that comes out of the ski because of that binding it sounds like bs but i'm like trust me i've been going deep into that like kind of trying to because it was something anecdotally I noted early on in the testing period. And like when I was talking to you today, like I do a lot of testing with the exact same ski, one binding on my right foot, one binding on my left foot. I think it's the only true way to really evaluate something. And there was pretty early on, I'm like, why does this have more energy? There's something to it. And it's just kind of like, this doesn't make sense to me. And the funny part was I never mounted this, the binding myself. It was always the Solomon engineers. Yeah. And then when I got my first pair and I got a jig and I mounted it and that was my first like, like wait, maybe it's that gasket and that fifth, that fifth hole. And then I kind of started just like investigating, asking people, I'm like, what do you think? How does it ski? And hearing a lot of the kind of similar feet, like words, people saying it has more energy or somewhere. And then seeing like the Owen three P super soft, flexible ski and it like popping off that fifth screw. And I was like, huh, there's flex under this binding. And that's why it has energy. So, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk just because you started making a while ago. We were talking about some different bindings. You were making some pretty big claims about the Solomon Warden. So, shift versus Warden. Personally, like I would still choose the shift for that energy, but of all Alpine bindings, the Warden of everything I've tested, the Warden was my favorite binding. Um, and again, I realized like some of these preferences, one, they're very nuanced. Yeah. And sometimes for a lot of people really hard to tell but i also think there's people that might not be able to tell it like and be able to like articulate it but they will be able to tell it and the warden in particular to me i was like realizing i was like oh this binding skis super well 
And this was two years ago when we at Solomon mounted maybe like 20 plus pairs of 106s with different bindings and just every binding that is out on the market and just testing them against each other. And for our own firm information for how we're developing products and a lot of companies do that, but like Solomon's been really cool at involving athletes on that. And uh, that's one of the things I realized it was like the warden, like the wide footprint, the power transmission. I don't like the way power transmission, but it's almost the precision that it has and like again the energy that comes out of that binding is like oof, it skis super super well and we were talking about this earlier one of the i think the most key factors that people don't talk about enough is elasticity and elasticity we generally talk about in terms of safety elasticity means that it's got shock absorption and it's gonna like move out 47 millimeters before it snaps you back in, it goes to 48 and boom, you're out. But what I really realized was elasticity has a lot to do with the way that the, the ski skis and how much power you get out of a ski and how much like performance you get out of a ski. So I took at one point an STH2, which has the most elasticity of any binding on the market. Toe or heel? Toe. Yeah. Toe, okay, which is toe is like, I yep. personally think is the only thing that really matters. Heel elasticity actually, I think kind of tends to destroy your performance because I mean, I mean, just think about it. If you're in setting an edge and you got your toe in and all of a sudden your heels moving, there's a lot more loss of performance. It adjusts your, your hip. Uh, it like throws your hip out a little bit more where with the toe, it's almost like a shock in a car or an F1 car where you need some sort of like you get so much grip out of a binding that you need some sort of sock shock absorption. Yeah. I'm convinced if you put a phantom cam on your toe piece while on ice in a carve, you would see your toe just like wildly moving. And what I realized that was when I mounted uh, a 106 with an SCH2 with elasticity on my left foot and on my right foot with no elasticity. So we had locked out the, the AFD. Um, just made it completely so you couldn't and then we smash the afd up into your into your boot so it's a dangerous Damn. proposition yeah. but make it lock out see how it performs and i just remember like making carves at um we were in tinia in france and my right turn would like engage in and as soon as i would start to get into the apex of the turn it would just like wash out and i would lose perf like all power I had in the turn. And all of a sudden at the exit of the turn, just like had nothing. It was like dead at the bottom and just like, and then I get in my left turn, the, the, the binding with elasticity and just like rail a turn perfectly and come right out of it and just do that again. And you're like, why is the binding with a lot of elasticity have more edge hold and more power than the binding with no elasticity. Like we talk about power transmission so much, but we don't talk about like shock absorption. Right. And you realize like all these vibrations going up through your ski, up through your toe, if they don't go, if they don't go somewhere, they're going to go into your toe, into your ankle, into your yeah. knee, into your hip, and they're going to like lose the power. And it was like kind of a dawning moment of being like, oh, that's why these bindings with elasticity ski better than those without elasticity. It's why you get on a tech toe 
and you're like, oh, this thing skis like crap uh-huh. when you're on like a groomer, which you shouldn't be on. But yeah. it was something that was like, oh, okay, so it's not just safety. This is truly performance and elasticity should be factored into performance. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, we started doing this years ago, right? But talking about the suspension of a ski. Mm-hmm. And you're now talking about the shock absorption or the suspension of a binding. Yeah. And I, I, I've been saying for years, like I think for, you know, for a while, maybe still today, there was a kind of a thing where it was like, yeah, man, like that ski's not stiff enough for me. Not powerful enough. The yeah. binding doesn't have a power transmission. Like we, you hear with tech bindings, they're like, oh, it's got so much power transmission. Okay, except this one, this is now just got personal. Yeah. Because I have told you. Yep. It is admittedly one company in particular where I have felt, and it is, if people disagree or have had a different experience, great. And you can let us know, but... Well, you're allowed to say it. You're a reviewer. I'm not allowed yeah. to say it as a... I, I don't want to disparage anyone yeah, yeah. for the, 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 the feeling of bias. This has been my problem with Dynafit bindings or Dynafit, as one might say, in particular, is that that is where of every binding I've ever been in, and we did that test, we did it several years ago, and I have been back in Dinafit binding since, at the end or exit of a turn, it just feels to me like every Dinafit binding I've been in wants to wash. <laughs> and I do not like that feeling, and I would equate that, what I'm calling that washing sensation with power transfer so i don't know if we're and i generally and this is where i actually look at and i think we'd like we touched on this in our conversations but i actually look at that washing feeling honestly comes out of the heel well yes it's the heel in a dinafit now ironically i don't find that same sensation say in something like the look pivot mm-hmm. which is a binding that the whole turntable thing is mm-hmm. like set up to be like yeah let, let's let this heel move so i don't know what's going on here mm-hmm. but i'm telling you on snow what i'm finding to be true and so you have been on this kick the last couple of days about power transfer is an overrated term we're using when it comes to bindings you know if i'm talking about the shift binding versus like the new marker duke pt I am not there talking about, oh, there's such a difference in power transfer. Frankly, when I'm talking about most good Alpine bindings on the market, it's not like, oh, this one has way better power transfer. So admittedly, this is in a pretty specific category of binding where I have felt like a very clear, not subtle Mm -hmm. difference. So what you just admitted is that's a really niche situation then I guess I would be with you in saying like, okay, yeah, like I don't find myself tempted to talk about power transfer all the time. I I look at power transmission as not a scale of like like you're going up a curve and the more power transmission necessarily the better. I almost look at it as as a zero versus one. You either have it or you don't. And because I've noticed, yes, like what I was telling you about the Warden and versus the STH, there's a little subtleties in power transmission, but that's when also I'm really focused on exactly the performance of it. And I also would say like, if I'm going zero versus one, the STH2 is a one 
it has plenty of power transmission. The Warden is a one, it has plenty of power transmission. If I were to grade it in my own like little personal preference, maybe the Warden is a 1.2, but it's not gonna be like throwing me over the top because there's other people on the, the Solomon team that prefer the STH2 as opposed to the Warden. I think that it goes into individual preference. What you're talking about, I think is like that just falls into the zero like you're you, yeah. you failed at a binding i think i'm all right with that like it, it's like to me like starting to nitpick the power transmission is like something that we overuse and that's why i'm saying something we underuse is talking about elasticity yeah. and suspension and that's where so you start talking to downhill ski racers and downhill ski racers of all the other disciplines too are really really concerned with elasticity because you are going 60 to 100 miles an hour yeah. on blue ice yep. with a lot of vibration yeah and it is counterintuitive to the way that most people think but ski race downhill ski racers boots are soft way softer than a slalom skier or a gs skier the downhill ski racers bindings generally have more elasticity than a slalom skier or a GS skier. They, their skis though, are definitely far more stiff for obvious reasons, but their whole thing is like, if you're trying to carve on blue ice at 80 miles an hour, one of the most important factors is being able to suspend yourself to continue that edge you are hitting so many vibrations throughout it that the more stiffness you have through the whole system, the more it just gets jolted up into your body and then the slower you end up going because you're losing edges. So they're more nuanced when it comes to suspension as opposed to power transfer. And this power transfer thing is, a, it's like a zero versus one. Yeah. When you get into a shorter, slower race performance, yeah, you can get away with having a little less suspension because you're looking for a little more precision and you're looking for, I'm on my edge in the slalom for a half a second versus in downhill, I'm riding an edge for three seconds at 80 miles an hour and I need something to absorb these shocks through this turn. So, and I think that ends up correlating to, to free skiing and what we do on piece and off piece. I think we are more aligned with downhill racers, even though we don't match their speeds, than we are with the, the, the precision of, of technical racers like Slalom and GS skiers. Let me ask a question while, uh, while I fill our glasses. Short answer here favorite genre of movies favorite genre of movies oh heist movies are definitely up there i think yeah. and then uh crime cartel tv shows are probably the 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 next genre there's less crime cartel kind of movies i think they're more in depth but i think heist bank heists and he art heists and like heist movies they're they're so good so so good we actually talked about this a lot at dinner and i don't mean to step on the toes of maybe a future episode i just want to say this is why i'm so bummed out at you that you have not yet watched den of thieves but we talked about heat so we talked about heat we're both way way high on heat yeah but so this is kind of my please like it this pains me 
you have to watch Den of Thieves it's soon. So it's just promise. Downloaded on my iPad, and it was my flight out here. I was gonna watch it, but I was I had to get up at three in the morning, so I ended up sleeping. Oh, that's but true. But I'll, I'll watch it on the way. Thanks for getting up at three a.m. to come out to see us. I do appreciate that. I'll stop giving you shit. Okay, so that's your favorite genre, but do you have a clear cut like favorite film? Because that could theoretically not have to be within your favorite genre. No, it's definitely not. I mean, honestly, like if I like kind of have a loose top five and some things come in and out, but uh, Dumb and Dumber is in the top five. It's, I mean, it's- It can't, it's it's, seriously though, maybe number one? Potentially number one. (laughs) I mean, I can't think of a movie that has more influence on my life than that movie. Uh, because it was just like, it's so genius. It is next level genius. You watch it 25 times as I've done. And there's subtleties in that movie that you were like, oh my God, that is comedic genius at its top level. And it's, it's called Dumb and Dumber and it's a wacky movie. And I, but it's a ski movie too. Yeah, Uh, it is. It falls into the category. Um, so Dumb and Dumber is up there. Um, and in that genre too, Office Space yeah. is actually one of those movies that yeah. I'm like, yeah. that has shaped my life. Like, <laughs> I think I'm a pro skier and not working in an office at Inatech because of that damn movie. And I was a big Mike Judge fan. I loved yeah. Beavis and Butthead. We talked about that yeah. last night. I love Silicon Valley. Yes. Mike Judge, I think, is a genius. Yeah. So, And then obviously what he predicted with our... Uh, essentially current situation and idiocracy. So he's a genius. Um, and then I also, SLC Punk was one of my favorite movies yeah. of all time. I, uh, I remember when I was like 17, 16 watching that. I was super into punk rock when I was young. Um, and that movie, I think, had a lot of influence on my life. I like really kind of connected with the main character in it. Um, and, you know, just like youth and rebellion and conformity it's one of those like age-old stories i think is really good um but then you kind of get into the yeah the more action flickies like heat is up there you you can't list i think a top action movie without putting the dark knight in there i yeah i uh, totally agree but if you said to me heat or dark knight desert island you get one I would go heat enough. I couldn't say heat fast enough. And I love Dark Knight. I think I'm in the same boat. I mean, I still like heat the very first time I watched it. It was just like you're glued. Yeah. But I I got the same reaction from... Dark I remember Dark Knight. Super good. You're like every time Heath Ledger came on on screen, there's like this visceral emotional reaction of fear that you don't even realize you're having. Mm -hmm. And you just all of a sudden realize after like an hour into the movie, you're like every time that guy gets on on stage you're just like yeah. scared like yeah. this is the epitome of chaos and fear yeah. and it is like everything that we try to do in life is control so that we don't fear things and here is the the, the character of it so i i mean i think that was a genius movie i love christopher nolan's movies yeah. for sure so um but yeah those are top i mean i could go like you go into some deeper like you, you want to sound smart and say like smart movies but no, like i i my criteria for this question is either the movie you've actually watched the most times mm-hmm. or and shout out to bill simmons yep. 
who we both love, yep. and I'm going to steal this from him because it's brilliant. This idea, and I've said this before on podcasts because I've ripped off Simmons before here, but if you were flipping channels and that movie comes on and you're like, damn it, I okay, I'm in. Those are my two favorite ways to answer the like, what's the what's your favorite movie of all time? Yeah, no, that that is a good way. And that that fits because Dumb and Dumber, Office Space, those are on TV and I will watch them. <laughs> um, I can't tell you how many times I've watched Dark Knight on a freaking airplane. Huh. Because you're just like, I'm like flying to Europe. It's a 12 hour flight. I can't sleep. And the Dark Knight is up there again. Okay, I'm in. in. And I'll watch the whole damn thing all the time. And so, yeah, that one I think is really, it's pretty amazing. Um, I can't really think. I actually like, I try and list my books more. So, huh. and we're getting off topic here. We are. It's an interlude. We had it, to refill our glasses. We, had, we did have to fill our whiskey glasses. So, um, but I know I, I always, I go through this and my wife and I, we talk about it every once in a while. We're like, all right, what's your what's your Mount Rushmore of yeah. films? What are yeah. your, what would you hold up there? Yeah. So I recently, very recently, had a conversation with your colleagues, Alexi Godbu oh, and yeah. Stan Ray. Shout out to them. They will both have just laughed at me having called them your colleagues. Um, Which lis- is- listen to that episode if you want to know why they would have just laughed. That's an inside joke within yep. Solomon. Yep. They both mentioned Dumb and Dumber, but they gave me a homework assignment to watch Grandma's Boy. Yeah, there's a nuance. There's a lot of people that love that movie, and I'm like not that into oh, it. You've seen it. I have seen it. All right. Like there's something, there's this kind of, I think, a genre of film that like you see it a lot, and it's kind of the, it's the ungrown adult living through life and like dumbing their way through it uh-huh. and I, I yeah i didn't like it i just oh, don't like Stan's that it's not going to be psyched on you right now i know i know okay. but there is a like there's a there's a full fan underground thing of 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 that movie mine is like if that if i had to go the like underground it's hot rod and anything that andy sandberg does okay ah so andy sandberg is a it's your guy. yeah okay yeah um, He's a NorCal NorCal guy too. Berkeley went to UC Santa Cruz, where I went to. Hmm. Some connection. Maya, I, Ru- Maya Rudolph too. Huh? Huh? Look at you. Huh? I'm learning so much. Adam Scott, who is in Adam Scott. Oh, oh, um, uh, uh, Parks and Rec. Yeah, Parks and Rec. He was in the. Uh, he's in Will Ferrell movies. He was in um, uh, Step Brothers. He plays yeah. the guy, the brother, who's like in total ass. So he's a Santa Cruz guy. Yeah, we got some comedic roots where I'm from. (laughs) I don't know why. And thus ends our movie interlude segment. Back to gear. Back to bindings. I feel like I should give you the floor for a minute because we've talked a lot about this the last couple days. Tech bindings. Mm -hmm. What are some people failing to understand about tech bindings tech toes pin bindings as you as you will the floor is yours say what you will on this topic so like my thesis statement to tech bindings pin bindings we'll call them what you will is a statement i'm gonna swear in and it's important to swear i think in it is that they're fucking dangerous and that illustration has not been 
told to the people that use them. And it is known among people that use them religiously. And I think a large percentage of the ski population that uses them has been duped by marketing, by DIN settings that do not exist for it, and by the fact that there's an entirely different standard being the tech standard versus an alpine standard for binding safety that they fall under. And I mean, this was the impetus of why we wanted to create this shift because we knew that very basic statement that they are dangerous. And to this day, I ski in them. I ski in them a yeah. ton. Yeah, you do ski in. And that should be said. You that ski in these bindings a lot. A lot. It just has to be known that you are taking a certain risk with skiing any sort of tech binding, any sort of toe piece that is pinned into your boot, that has a certain level of risk with it. And you have to understand how they perform, how they release, how they don't release, I think, to understand how to ski them. and. I fault a lot of companies that have put quasi marketing out there saying certain things, giving f almost false impressions of its safety. And the number one thing I always talk, always say is you put a DIN on a tech binding and you're misleading people because there's never a DIN on a toe piece on a tech binding. There's not a single tech binding out there that says it's a DIN 12 toe. Most of the tests I've seen with every single tech toe that there is, you lock it up, you put it in walk mode, that is a 30 and over DIN. And none of us ski except for old downhill ski racers yeah. Yeah. on would ski with a 30 DIN toe piece. That can be used to your advantage. In Chamonix yeah. and in steep skiing situations, I lock my toe out because I don't want that to come out. And he, the thing with tech bindings and the toe piece in general, and the reason why we're not talking about DIN and the heel piece is because I have had binding engineers tell me that 98% of injuries that are caused through bindings are because of a lack of a toe release mm -hmm. heel releases they happen they're necessary but they're not a, a method of injury style movement that creates knee injuries ankle injuries hip injuries it's generally with the toe it's that the classic backward twisting fall yeah. it's a classic tomahawk where you're twisting over each other and like the binding gets in your toe is going to want to release it's hard for your heel to release with a din when your toe doesn't have a din so for me i just want people to understand how to use them yeah exactly. because you can use them yeah and you can use them safely you just have to understand their nuances and you have to understand kind of the risk you're going into so for instance like i've heard of people locking their toes out getting caught in avalanches and greg hill is one of them and getting caught in avalanches and, and getting spiral tib fibs 
and that's because your your ski is not coming off and when you lock your binding you have to think of it as equivalent of a 30 din alpine binding at minimum most of the tests i hear people will say like you'll probably rip the screws out of the wood before you release out of the toe piece so you have to understand that the same token you have to understand that if you put it in a ski mode you get a pretty inconsistent release value out of the toe most tech binding toes have about two millimeters of elasticity and we were talking about this before as elasticity as a key performance indicator but it's also a, it is a safety indicator meaning that you can move your toe you know for sdh2 52 millimeters before it comes back in two millimeters not very much <laughs> look at a ruler two millimeters not much and what i've noticed with tech toes is it's in a real world situation is kind of an inconsistent release pattern you might like be charging through stuff with your your bindings in ski mode and never release and all of a sudden you do just like one kind of weird movement and they just like one pops off and it's super odd there's a incident a couple years ago in the dana plateau on the east side of a guy in ski mode takes one turn into a coolar ski pops off first turn tomahawk through coolar has to be life flighted out of there ski just popped off in ski mode even though he had plenty of experience of skiing coolars with tech toes unlocked what to me is like when they're unlocked they can be unpredictable so for me what i do is like if i'm in a place where i if i fall things could be bad i lock the toes and i know that's something that there's a lot of debate about and i know people will like comment on social media or youtube be like why are your toes locked you're like well because the 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 injuries that i could receive from me popping out of my skis are greater than if i were to tomahawk like i have low probability of tomahawking down this but i have a high probability if my toe releases i'm tomahawking this whole damn thing and i'm going to slam into rocks and so like i take that into factor but then if i'm skiing in stuff where maybe it's an open 35 degree powder slope and it's in the alpine i'm going to ski with those toes unlocked because i want that ski to come off if anything were to happen i ski in the trees the ski is the toe is unlocked and it's one of these things you just realize like i don't think the education level of what people are using is quite out there and i fault the every binding manufacturer out there including ones i've sponsored on to not educate people um, on the fact that you are taking a little bit different risk and you should probably understand how this binding operates in order to use it to its best and most safe performance level because you can operate them safely you just have to understand how they they work so that's i mean yeah that's my kind of thing with them and i just it, it like bums me out because here's another factor never ski a tech binding at a ski area because we all know this is happening now all the time never do not do it <laughs> it's just like i mean you're talking about a binding concept that was designed 30 years ago for alpine touring racing for racing uphill this is not something it this was in an era when skis were very thin an era when ski yeah. boots were very soft this is for a performance that was on the up not the down yep at its core 
that original DNAFIT binding is pretty similar to what we get today. Yeah. There are improvements in it, but its basic function is very similar. So using it on fat skis, using it at the ski resort was never its intention. And to use it on a fat ski on a ski resort, one, you're not gonna have that much fun. It's gonna hurt. It's not gonna have a high performance. And two, you really are taking some pretty high risk. Um, I've had an orthopedic surgeon in Jackson Hole say, since the skyrocketing popularity of tech bindings, I have seen more spiral tip hip fractures and knee injuries than I've ever seen before. Like we are seeing higher injury rates because of tech bindings. So that's to me, like, I just wanna like let people know, just like understand what you're dealing with. Like you can, you can use them. I use them a ton, but just understand it. Good, I like it. That was a good like public service announcement, <laughs> yeah. I think. We're about to open up a whole can of worms here we can kind of do this shorter. We can do this bigger. I don't know. Next question. One word. Beacons. Ooh. Yeah. Hot topic right now. Hot topic. We've been talking about this one as well. What are your thoughts on beacons at yes. the moment? One, I think we kind of touched on that too on our bike ride today. Is like, man, would it be hard to be a beacon manufacturer? Yeah, 100%. And I don't want to throw beacon manufacturers under the bus by any means because it's kind of a thing like you're literally, you're doing a service. It is not something anyone's making a ton of money on as a company, as a corporation. People are doing it because it's a life-saving device. Um, but... When it comes down to it, I've thought over the past few years that one of the things that's most disregarded with beacon design is the actual like industrial design of it. The, the electronics over the last few years have gotten really good. When we're talking about avalanche safety these days, the beacon is almost the least important part of our avalanche rescue. Not in terms of like its importance, but it's in terms of how good you are at it and the time that it takes you to find someone. The probing and the shoveling is now taking more time than finding someone with a beacon because the electronics have gotten really good. They're, the computer processing was, is, is incredible. But with that, I've thought like, one of the things I see with a lot is the, the industrial design being that like the the housing of these electronics isn't super well thought out. And and we're seeing that right now. And if you follow me on Instagram, I've been talking about it. And a few other pro skiers have been talking about, and I will say it is peeps and their industrial design of their beacon is failing. And it is causing one of the most basic needs of a beacon of staying on an incend position through an avalanche so that you can be rescued and it's popping into off. And I've seen that anecdotally with um, the, the BCA tracker. It's less of an issue, but I've seen an issue where when you're in search mode and then you're in a multiple burial scenario, which is low likelihood, there's not actually not too many multiple burial scenarios, but if you're in search mode, and let's say you find someone and you, someone instructs you to start digging on that finding and you take your BCA tracker three and you throw it into your pocket because that's a good place to put it while you're digging. It's really, really easy because of the knob design 
to flip back to send. And what it will do was increase the time that the searcher who's going to find another person looking for that person because they'll come back to you, the digger. And the BCA Tracker 2 was a little renowned for that, and the BCA Tracker 3 kind of still continues with that problem. Again, it's not like that problem is not as big of a problem. Multiple burials are something that is very rare. But it's like kind of, I'm like, what? come on, man. Like, If you designed that plastic a little bit better, it would have been perfect. And then we're, we're seeing that, obviously, with the peeps right now, is that it's just like that issue is really accentuated because there's now multiple real-world accounts, and including a death, where people verified that the beacon was on before an avalanche, and then during an avalanche and after an avalanche, the beacon was off. And one resulted in a death, one resulted in a lucky probe strike that rescued Nick McNutt, the professional skier, and they pulled him out in four minutes. So those kind of things, it's just like one of the things I've realized is like, we, we're working on the electronics, let's work on the industrial design as well. Let's make sure yeah. that is a factor of it. I would say we do a lot of beacon testing. Like Solomon's been really amazing with our meetings that we have that are generally product development meetings. We just d- d- devote a day or two to pure safety. And I've seen the culture of the team change. And I've seen multiple beacon tests. I've seen we do massive scenarios. We do medical drills. We do medical schools. Last year, they took they essentially get us a, a, not a wilderness, a wilderness first aid. We did a two-day course, the wilderness first aid for the whole team. And, and so we're, we're lucky enough to do these. And one of the things I've seen is like the performance of individual beacons, they're all pretty, pretty good. Like you're going to not go wrong, but where I've seen the lack of performance is literally just like how you designed the switch tab. Um, so that's kind of one of the things we're, we're seeing right now. And I hope that that continues where people are like focusing a little bit more on just the basic functionality of it. Cause when we're doing our, our scenarios, like if you don't find someone with your beacon in under four minutes, you're failing. And that's like a massive improvement from back in the day. A near beginner level with a beacon today can find someone, in, a single person in four minutes. Where we're seeing the time cut to dwindle is in shoveling and probing. And so, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's the, it's the hot topic right now is <laughs> obviously industrial design of beacons. You know, it's funny, we did... I think we did this very end of 2019 or very beginning of 2020, a kind of episode about, we did like two. One was like best products or most influential products of the past decade. And then we did an episode dedicated to like, where are, where, what are our predictions for like, what gear has the most room to improve? I listened to it. Okay, (laughs) great. I was pretty solidly on the like, we're going to see beacon innovation and, and thinking about, so I want to put that question to you. Do you think, so this is not uh, what you wish to be true, but like, do you think say five years from now, beacons are going to look radically different, not much different at all. And then let's put the same question, but change the timeline from five years to 10 years out. I will say I actually disagreed with that assessment because of the fact that with uh, any normal mass-produced beacon right now, 
for the most part, you can find someone in less than four minutes. And when we're talking about life saving, most people know that after 15 minutes, your your mm-hmm. chances of survival drop 50%. There's a lot of 50% gets cut in half by every avalanche that happens results in 50% of the time you're buried, 50% of the time you're not. And so I look at the terms of what is, where's the most room to gain? And in the, the room of four minutes, that's actually less time to gain. Like my time that I'm taking with probing and my time that I'm taking with shoveling is where I'm actually losing the most time yeah. and have the most time to improve upon. Yeah. So I look at it as like, if I had something that like, I don't know, shot an arrow out of the snow with a flag and you knew exactly where that person was, you're still going to only save like three minutes. Like, because it's still going to take you a minute to get down to the the toe of the avalanche. And at that point, you're still going to take, I haven't seen a time to cut down upon the probing and the, the shoveling. I know there's Actually, Peeps put out a new probe, and it's got some interesting. We tested it last year, and it's got some potential. I don't know if it's quite there yet, and it's going to take some retraining, but they do. They are trying to work on that. And then shoveling, you're like, well, that's a pretty just manual labor. Yeah. <laughs> just be strong. If the shovels have <laughs> flamethrowers yeah, on totally, them. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Okay. So what I actually see in avalanche improvement the the most chance for avalanche improvement is in the education realm. Not getting into them. Yeah, like not getting trapped. Not getting trapped and decision-making. And what we've seen over the last, I would say, five years, we're actually seeing with the increase of backcountry use and almost a plateau of avalanche deaths and incidents compared to five and 10 years previous, we should see a consistent death rate but we're seeing a lower death rate for the amount of backcountry days that are out there. And so it's, to me, it's the education and the decision-making. Well, what has really happened in like avalanche education isn't into the science of avalanches, into the, the nuances of um, to how to dig a pit, all that stuff. It's all now about decision-making. It's about social heuristics. It's about, the things that you do and the human behavior and how you interact with mountains. It's about terrain management. We're seeing avalanche courses being taught less in the like, here's how you dig a pit. And when you get ECT 12, that says this. What they never used to teach you is like, you dig a pit and you go like, cool, I got ECT 12 and EC at 30 centimeters and ECT 20 or like, yeah, I don't know. 52 at um, 70 centimeters. And you're like, okay, well now what do I do? Like they never, they taught you like the science of how to dig a pit, but they never taught you the decision-making. And I remember being like 10 years ago, I'm like learning pits. I'm like, I'm super into this. I dig a pit and be like, well, what do you do now? We're on the top of the slope. Do we ski it? Do we not? Like what are the probabilities? And we're starting to see more and more teaching and essentially the psychology and the decision-making of it. And I think that's where the biggest room for improvement. And to me, like the biggest room improvement is terrain management. We don't talk about that enough. Um, I always say any given extreme uh, avalanche danger, you can go skiing. Even if it's extreme, you can go skiing. I've skied in the backcountry on extreme level days. You can do it. It's not necessarily advised, but if you know your terrain, you can go ski it. 
Same goes with high avalanche danger. You just have to manage your terrain appropriately. Okay, we need you to, all right, what do you mean? Like you just got done telling people they can go ski. Yeah, this is like super high level shit and it's probably like a liability for saying that. But it's it's a, a thing of saying we, it's a hard thing to talk about, but it's a thing of like, for instance, if it's a higher extreme day, yeah. there's a zone up in Pemberton and Whistler that we go to. When it's dumped a lot of snow, everywhere is avalanching. What makes it a place that we can go ski is that as we were snowmobiling out there, there is zero alpine terrain above us. Yep. So there is absolutely no chance for a class four or class five avalanche to come down through the trees yep. and create new massive avalanche paths. We know that because yeah. we know that terrain. And we go out into, as we're crossing out, it's like a 20 kilometer sled in. We know that there's no alpine terrain above us, so we're fine. We know that there's no cut blocks and even short little things that are gonna slide on us because everything is below like 25 degrees. It's in like second growth trees. It's like a logging zone. So everything's like super tight trees, like tight anchors. Like you can't even ski through some of this yeah. stuff. And that's like a moniker if it's you can ski it, it can avalanche. And then we get to the zone and it's like maybe 150 feet long. And it's like, it's like a film zone. It's a dirty secret of Got filming it. is it's like super short what we're doing. It's like, it's like, wait, what? Two or three turns. Okay. And it's like that overhead trench. And then you're out of there. Okay. And there's no terrain trap at the bottom. There's no flushing through the bottom. There's nothing above it. And like, we can go out there in the zone on a high avalanche day and be like, I can get to a, through these like little cut blocks and switchbacks on my sled. I can get to the top and be like, jump on it, kick on it and be like, if it slides, everyone's out of the way and okay, cool. We're out of there. If it doesn't, then I can start to understand the snowpack, make two turns, get a shot of deep pal and we're out of there. And so it's this, this whole thing that I, I started learning from some of the best pros out there. It was like, it's a lot about terrain management and that you can go skiing on any given day and any given avalanche danger as long as you know where you're going. Um, but, you know, we were talking about here in Crested Butte, there was a high to extreme avalanche day that we backed out on, even though it was super deep, we thought we could be safe, but we, I didn't know the terrain super well. And as we started to kind of look at it, and I was looking at topo maps, I'm like, we are gonna just cross like one zone of alpine above us on this road and i just was like we're not doing it. we're going we're turning around we're going home and tragically we saw two other kids that day and they went out there and got caught in an avalanche and one of them died and it was like the, this notion of terrain management is something it's a very advanced level of of thinking and it's really hard to teach because it's something that really is taught through experience not in a classroom and it's something that we're kind of i I hope it starts to get more and more taught because the classroom can't really teach it. It's more like a mentorship that can teach it. Yeah. For me, it was Jeremy Jones that taught me that. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty good. good mentor. Yeah. It's so funny. Two things I want to say. This is actually one of the things I feel like I've learned about you this trip in a lot of our like very off the record conversations where like this was on an getting taped, you could have said anything you wanted and it was just very free talking. One of the things I learned is that 
you, I would say, are actually more cautious than I would have imagined. You're the guy with the 50 project, you know, like I really admire and appreciate this about you. Again, in a bunch of conversations that have come up, different moments that have come up over the last couple of days where it's like, and, and I guess I want people to know this, like Cody's not going out there and he's like, no, I'm good. I'm sure I'm good. That's not, I mean, we've talked about who you will and will not go out into the mountains with. That's something that every single one of us should be asking ourselves that question. There's like the stuff we say, and then there's like what we actually do. And you have brought up multiple anecdotes of where it like wasn't the cool move for you to be like, yeah, I'm not going right now, or I'm not going with this person right now. And and I I admire that. And I hope that all of us do that, right? Emulate that. The other point is you and I have been having a lot of conversations about how a lot of our conversations broadly lack nuance. We were talking about this when it comes to politics, where everything is supposed to be utterly black and white. That person is pure evil. This other side is pure good. And like, we're not very good at nuance, uh, it's it's hard in media form to talk with nuance. And that's like even just that, that last conversation that we were just talking about. Like it's something I like I, I I'm like scared to talk about because yeah. it is it's nuanced and yeah. you could lead people into danger and you're like, I that's something I don't want. And no, it it it, it is if you can tell from our conversations here and our conversations on this podcast, I don't know. I do a lot of self-introspection. Yeah. And I do a lot of thinking and philosophizing about things and skiing and life and just like, I don't know, I'm very nerdy like that. Yeah. And one of the things we were, one, lamenting right now is the, the lack of nuance in our conversations and our lack of, uh, of I think one of the things is empathy in our, yeah. in our situations yep. too. Yep. And, and then when it comes to like, even the avalanche stuff is like, to me, like we we're talking about like certain friends, like literally friends that I will not go on certain trips with or mountain into mountains with. And it's a lack of making the hard decision for the greater good and the, the, the level of self-sacrifice. And I feel like I've had to make some hard decisions that are like, you want to be like, no, let's just, let's, let's just, it's fine. It'll be fine. And I think that's when it comes to avalanche safety, you do have to make the hard decision every once in a while. And when it comes to hard decisions, I always tell people it's a lot easier to continue to the summit than it is to turn around. It is a lot easier. You create more questions by turning around than you do by continuing. It is very rare when you go into the mountains and all of a sudden you say like, I don't like this feeling or, you know, I'm getting these signs and you turn around and you ski out to the flats and the whole thing avalanches and you're like, we all would have died. That was a good decision. That almost never happens. You sit at the bottom and you go like, it's an avalanche. Nothing happened. Could we do that? Am I a wussy? Did I, was I scared? Would I make the right decision? Am I ever going to be able to come back here? Like you start to really, really deeply question yourself. 
it is a far harder decision to turn around than it is to keep going. And when it comes to these hard decisions and these nuance, you really have to focus on it. And you really have to like think about your mindset in that moment, the experiences that led you to that moment, the, the, the things that you want to continue to do in your life. And it is like, I don't know. It, it is why I love skiing and mm -hmm. it is why I love yeah. the mountains because I feel like this, this sport and these mountains have taught me more about life and about myself and about community and about friends and everything than a master class could ever do. And I, I, I really value that. And that's what, it's why I think in these sort of ways, because you're like, yeah, I truly learned a lot in the mountains. We've used this expression a lot on Blister, like know thyself, shout out to Socrates and Plato, right? But like, it's still fucking true. And it's like, if you're the moron listening to this and all you took was the moment where Cody said, sometimes it's okay to go out in a, like extreme <laughs> Abbey danger. Yeah, totally then you got to recognize you're the moron. Yeah, totally. And you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And you don't know the terrain that well. Just stop and ask yourself. And again, I think our culture, we don't like nuance right now. No. In a lot of different aspects. And I think if those of us, it's like if you're trying to be too cool for school or think like you, you want to be that badass, well, how well do you know the terrain you're going into? Yeah. How much experience do you actually have? Because if you're a newbie listening to this, or you're a new, or you're just a, you're very experienced, but you're new to a zone, you're back to being a newbie. Yeah, and you should know that. Like, and that's where and I you should know that. Yeah, like I, it's funny because in my career, like things I've done and what people call me, like you ski the crack and people's like number one comment is like, how did he fit his balls through that coulard? Uh -huh. <laughs> you are the gnarliest man alive. Yeah. Like these kind of things of just like, you are so ballsy. You look at the 50 and they're like, Jesus Christ, you are so gnarly. I personally think myself as a complete wuss. Hmm. Like I look at myself and I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm not bold. I'm like making cautious, calculated decisions the reason I'm making cautious and calculated decisions is my, I don't want to die. Yeah. I've watched too many friends die. I'm not personally afraid of dying. I'm personally afraid of what it does to my family, what it does to my friends, what it does to my businesses, to my wife, yeah. to, to my future. Yeah. And so you're like, so when you come into this, I know you have to look at yourself and know the decisions you're making and how that affects yourself. The mountains are a place where I find those decisions are influenced and where I look at myself for who I am. I look at my weaknesses. I look at my strengths. I look at everything. And that's where it's a thing where to me, you need to approach the mountains with total fear and total openness, <laughs> because if you do, you will then learn 
more about yourself, your community, the natural world than if you do of going to that mindset of like, I'm going to be rad. I'm going to conquer, uh, conquer shit, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it's why I do in the 50 and why we're so open with it and why I, I've seen it with prior generations of being a little timid to share that they're scared and why I'm a little more open to tell that I'm scared. Like, because I, in a certain way was like, looking at movies and look at people I'm like you're not scared and then I like go out there with them and I meet my heroes and they're like oh this is gnarly and then I watch the video and they're like yeah we're about to send it I'm like wait a minute why didn't you you uh, said like you said that the opposite what we thought about and yeah. so like I've always tried to be like authentic with it and I try and be real with it because I think it's just more beneficial for the audience and I, I think we talked about this last night like I have a very if people are listening to me it's not about me. I want it to be about them. And I want it to be like, hey, this is, I, I feel like I have some thoughts I've thought about that I think will be of value to you. So otherwise don't listen to me because I'm worthless. But like, I want what I say to be of value for people. And I want what I do to be of value for people. Otherwise, like, what's the point? Here's the deal. <laughs> I had two more topics we were going to supposedly talk about. It feels like kind of right there. I, I think like, we're good. I don't uh, going back into gear after that seems. Nope, we're not going to do it. Yeah, we're yeah. going to save it. We know the topics. We're going to save it for another time. Let's just say the gear that we're talking about is the gateway drugs to what we just talked about. Yes, but here's the other thing that we're supposed to do. I know you always call yourself a pro skier. We're supposed to talk about you as a runner. Oh yes. <laughs> This is what's going to happen. We're wrapping up this episode of Gear 30. We will have you back on Gear 30 sometime soon to talk about the other things that we didn't talk about. Secret stuff that I can't talk about publicly. <laughs> well, I mean, there's the secret, secret stuff. Yes. And there were some other topics we didn't get on to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, let's, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, uh, I'll pull the curtain back on those. We want to have a conversation about the QST 118. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about gloves. There's some other stuff that we might not be able to talk about for like 10 years. Uh, two years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> two years. But we're going to conclude. Oh, then the, oh, the 10 year one. Yeah, that too. There's, okay. there's, there's a two year, there's a five year, there's a 10 year that okay. we will talk about one day. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So we have some things here, but. I think we're going to wrap this episode of Gear 30 for now. This has been fun. And it's honestly like uh, just a slew of fantastic conversations like the last couple days. Um, we did a very good job of not talking about gear at our Blister Speaker Series the other day. Uh, I'm trying to think. That, that will already be live by the time people are hearing this conversation. But if you have yet to listen to that blister podcast of this blister speaker series that that's a really really interesting conversation in its own right but i actually think we kind of wrapped on stage you were like we'll talk about gear on gear 30 yeah. so we can check that off our you know cross that off our to-do list i think what we're going to do now is actually record a conversation turns out cody has been running a lot surprisingly surprisingly and so we're gonna like take a quick break and then record a conversation for our running podcast off the couch did you ever really think you would be on 
a running podcast? No. <laughs> and I would, I would kick myself in the nuts if you told me that. But now I'm kind of into You're it. You're kind of into it. And I will say again, I t- told my wife one day that I was like, I'm kind of into running. And she was like, never say those words again. So Which is- we're going to talk about running from a, the most off-the-couch perspective you could possibly have. So point being, if all of you like cool kids skiers have yet to check out, it's a brilliant podcast. I love our off-the-couch podcast. The Dirty Secret is we often like barely talk about running. But anyway, Cody's going to be on Off the Couch, and that's what we're going to talk about now, about Cody and running. So um, anyway... Thus wraps up our Gear 30 episode, but we do need to get you back soon because we have some unfinished business. So We do. Okay. We can go deep on gear. Yeah. And we can continue on it. All right. Um, hey, man, thank you. This has been fun. That was super fun. All right. Okay, it is time now for our What We're Celebrating This Week segment. It is currently Thursday Uh, 6.35 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and we've got a couple of things this week. Now, in a couple hours, a couple neighbors are coming over. We're going to be having a little whiskey tasting party tonight, so I'm saving it for a little later. So, of course, though, that means among the things we'll be tasting, Whistlepig 15-year-old rye for sure, and we'll probably also break out the 12-year And that's it. That's what we're going to do tonight, the 12 and the 15. So later tonight, I'm going to be raising my glass to a couple things here. First, and this is a big one, we had a successful Blister Speaker Series event at Western. And I know that at the start of that conversation, I already said thanks to the students and the faculty and the administrators at Western who all came together and have been navigating these really difficult times. And again, I'm just really proud at how well they've been doing it. I think we all need to continue to stay vigilant and keep moving forward in the most responsible ways we can. So salute to the entire Western community for a successful speaker series and, you know, salute to Cody because he was really, really good and I thought shared a lot of really important perspectives on a variety of topics. So it was a great event and was happy to have that going again. Another thing I'm celebrating is we've really been in it. It has been an intense eight-week stretch, I'd say, and it was interesting. Yesterday, I actually needed to head to southwestern Colorado, and I had about a five-hour drive. I had some things I had to take care of down there, and it was just, like, breathtakingly beautiful, and it was interesting to be in a car I wasn't reachable via email. I had no cell reception or anything. And I got to just explore a good chunk of this state. And it was so beautiful that I like literally was kind of getting short of breath at times. And it was such a reminder of the privilege it is for us to be able to step out and be in the midst of these incredible landscapes. And it just was a personal thing for me. But after a pretty head down intense couple of months, it was really a cool time alone. And I also knew that at the time, Luke was sending out our digital guide. And so it was interesting to be thinking about this thing that we've worked really hard on 
is out to the entire world. And I got to just be kind of by myself decompressing a bit in seeing some just utterly spectacular mountain ranges and changing leaves and rushing waters and the rest. And I was really grateful for that. I'm celebrating that. That said, as joyful as that was, my heart is breaking for what is happening up around Boulder, Colorado and Estes Park and the horrible fires that they are facing there. And we have so many friends in those areas and it's devastating. And our thoughts are with you. I pray that we can do whatever we can do to correct these situations. As I saw someone saying, we need to do everything we can in our power to not make these things the new normal. I think that is going to take, again, continued vigilance, continue reevaluation on all of our parts to do what we can. It's going to take really good leadership as well. But mostly right now, I just, we're thinking of our friends and all of the people up in these areas and also in California that continue to be battling intense, intense wildfires. It's a really strong juxtaposition. I was having an incredibly joyful experience yesterday driving through mountains. And at the same time, many, many people are currently evacuating towns. And we're thinking of everyone who's facing really tough situations like that. Okay, finally, another thing we're celebrating, big new things. I made mention of this very briefly, maybe on the last Gear 30 podcast, but we have been working very, very hard on a new blister event, and we've been working on this for nearly a year now, and I am certain that I have spent over a thousand hours on this thing that we are calling the Blister Summit. And this Sunday, we are going to be sending an email to our current Blister members to give them the first details about the Blister Summit. And Blister members will have the first chance to sign up for what we really believe is going to be a new significant annual event in the ski world. So there's going to be a lot more to come on that. But if you have been planning on becoming a Blister member and you just haven't yet, you might want to do so before this Sunday so that you get first dibs on this new thing. Honestly, you really might. A lot of people have been involved in the planning of this. Again, as I've said before, I always think it's worth raising a glass to big new endeavors. This is going to be interesting, and we'll be telling you more about it soon. And Blister members, check your inbox on Sunday. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then be sure to subscribe and leave us that five-star rating in iTunes and tell your friends about, you know, the Gear 30 goodness. I also want to say thanks to Cody for the great week we had together and for this conversation. I want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. 
Now, until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.